Well, good morning. I'm really excited about this morning. Um, <clears throat> the devil tried to stop this. I think night before last, he kicked me in my sleep, and um, I woke up, and my back has been out. But um, got some good prayer this morning, and I'm excited about talking about what the devil didn't want me to talk about. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about the great demand, the great deception, and the great delight. And um, don't you just love the Bible? You know, it offers such great wisdom for us. And I was seeking some guidance the other day, and so I, I wasn't sure how God was going to speak to me, so I decided just to, you know, open up. Here's what I read. So Judas went away and hanged himself. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's not too king, so uh, I thought I'd try it again. Go and do likewise. <laughs> well, I wasn't keen on that. One more try. What you must do, do quickly. (laughs) What can I say? The Bible says it, so I guess I should go hang myself. Quickly. (laughs) Well, you know I'm joking, but sometimes we have to be careful about how we study the Bible and how we discern the truth in the Bible. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the message to us in your word that God loves us. Thank you for the message today in the songs, in the spirit of this meeting, that you love us. So I pray that you'll speak to our spirits this day, this message that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to share with you some verses that I think can hurt us if we look at it improperly or help us if we wholeheartedly receive the truth that's offered. The great demand is the great commandment, which is love the Lord our God with your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is familiar to us. So how you doing? How many of you love God? Great. How many of you love your neighbor? How many of you love yourself? Good. Not quite as many. (laughs) Sometimes it is hard to love ourselves. And why is that? Well, for one, we remember this morning that argument we had. Or yesterday when we responded irritably. Or Friday driving home when that driver da-da-da-da. And we know how we are when there's nobody around. 
and we know about our flaws, and we may have done some really bad things that we know about it and others don't. So sometimes, what we're, because of how we are on the inside or how we think we are, we feel like we don't measure up. Now, we've had help with that critical way of thinking about ourselves. Um, hurts that have penetrated our hearts, words from our parents that were misspoken but cut us deeply, classmates in childhood that have mocked us, uh, a spouse with high expectations that we can't live up to and who spoke out of his or her frustration. And you know what? We've had some more help. I believe that many in the church not just our little body, but in the the church, uh, larger church, many of us are in the throes of the deception of Satan. We have an enemy of our souls that does anything within his power to disable us, to cause us to be ineffective as Christians, as mothers, as spouses, as prayer warriors. He's thrown out his great deception we are unworthy and so our hearts sink in shame and so many of us have bought it hook line and sinker now it is true that there are such things as arrogant christians uh, few and far between but they are there i've known some and so this message may or may not deal with arrogant Christians because I haven't had many dealings with arrogant Christians, so I'm not quite sure what makes them tick. But I've had many dealings with people who have felt they are unworthy. And I believe the majority of the church would fall under that category. But let's look to see what God says about us. We're going to look at Psalm 139, a favorite of many of ours. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It may be on the screen. I'm not sure. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Um, Especially verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You know, King David was a man after God's heart, but he had many flaws. And he wrote this psalm, and he, he said he knew full well that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you remember Adam and Eve? <laughs> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And here's Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe. And the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You crowned us with glory and honor. Now, Satan was also glorious, but he rose up against God. He was therefore cast down from heaven and banished, but not destroyed. Satan turned against the image of God, which is man. He lied to us, and we believed him. God created us to carry his glory, not only for ourselves, but to the world. And for that also, Satan hated us. We're a major threat to the kingdom of darkness if we're free in our hearts to be all that God called us for. But what area of our life is most often Satan's target? I believe it's our heart. Let's see what God says about our heart. 1 Samuel 16:7 Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Luke 12:34 Where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Proverbs 3:5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Proverbs 21.12, All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Jeremiah 29.13, You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. There are many more verses, but these are just a few that I wanted to share with you. And since the heart is so important to God, it has become a battleground. Our deepest thoughts are held in our hearts. Because of the lies of the enemy, sometimes we don't get it right. Uh, remember the story I told you at the beginning about my talk where the, um, the scripture said, Go thou and do likewise. And once I was talking with the Christian lady and we were looking at Psalm 14 which says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, I had just begun to feel the stirrings in my spirit that I was good. Good merchandise. Fearfully, wonderfully made. So she pointed out this verse where it very clearly says, All have turned aside. There's no one who does good, not even one. What could I say? There it is, black and white in the Bible. I was not good. But there is something in me that didn't accept that. Um, All I could think was, yes, but... And it took me years before I came to a deeper understanding of what the Lord was stirring in my heart. Um, That dear Christian lady was wrong in her application of that Bible verse. But she sincerely believed it. And sometimes we are sincerely wrong. Sometimes, in our heart of hearts, we're wrong. And we've been told the wrong thing. And Satan helped us buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. There's another difficult verse. Let's look at Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate. I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Okay, let's look at verse 18. There says, I know that nothing good lives in me. There it is again. But wait. What's the bigger context? Verse 17, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. And verse 20, now if I do what I 
do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Now, wait. (laughs) Is it me or isn't it? Or as an English teacher, I should say, is it I or isn't it? (laughs) No, it is not I. It is not me. It is not my true identity. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Sin living in me smarts off now and then. But that's not my identity. Now, I'm not trying to say that we're not responsible for our sin. Some of you remember Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. But we must take responsibility for our sin, confess our sin, and then God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I'm talking about my identity. Am I this sinful, no good person that doesn't deserve the grace of God? Am I this person that is not really important enough to warrant God's attention for my desires and hurts? No. No, a thousand times no. Remember, we were created in the image of God. And it was very good. Of course, there was the fall. But after the fall, God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve to clothe them. Have you thought about that? In an act that foreshadowed the cross, God shed blood to cover them. God has brought redemption to us, and he has restored us to his glory. Now, remember, during the time of Moses, he'd go up to the mountain and sat in the presence of Jesus and receive God's uh, law. And then he would come down from the mountaintop. And because of having sat in the presence of Jesus, his face just shined, radiated. And he would put a covering, a veil, over his face because he did not want the people to see that glory of God fading. So I want us to look at these verses in Corinthians about the glory of the New Testament and the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 18. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glorious glory and if what was fading went sorry and if what was fading away came with glory how much greater is the glory of that which lasts 
Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We were created to reflect God's glory, born to bear his image, and he ransomed us to reflect that glory again. Let's look at Romans 8, 28 to 30. We know that in everything God works for the good of those who love him. They are the people he called because that was his plan. God knew them before he made the world and he decided that they would be like his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn of many brothers. God planned for them to be like his son and those he planned to be like his son, he also called. He also made right. He also glorified. Do you see any place for shame here? Let's look at some more verses. Psalm 51.1, create in me a new heart. Ezekiel 36.26, I will give you a new heart. So let's look at Psalm 14 again that my friend shared with me where it says, there is no one who does good, not even one. But look at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. It's talking about restoration and joy. Joy belongs to God's people, not shame. My friend didn't look at the rest of the psalm. Let's look at Psalm 16:3. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious one in whom is all my delight. Folks, God is not ashamed of us. He delights in us. And part of the deception is that we've been told that our heart doesn't count. Uh, Jeremiah 6, 4, 14 says, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. In this way, we're told that we should just ignore our own desires, that we should humbly give up our own life sacrificially to others. Now, there is truth in that. But it's not the whole truth. At times, God does ask us to give up our rights. But he has never asked us to give up our identity, to give up the person he created us to be. 
Instead, he is the, in the process of restoring our true identity. That precious baby that came into existence because God said, Be. And you and I came into life, not randomly, but at the creative act of our loving and caring God. Now Luke 18.16 says, Now no one lights a lamp that puts it in a place where it's hidden or under a bowl, but he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. God made us his treasure, and he wants us to see his treasure. But the problem is, this treasure has been hidden in darkness, covered up with the deception of the enemy. Psalm 38:12. Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plot deception. Lamentations 4.2, how the precious sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. But, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by the delighting in self-abasement. The lies of the enemy have covered up our true heart. Your heart, my heart, is not darkness, but it is hidden in darkness. There is a radiance hidden in your heart that the world desperately needs. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Now, just how valuable is this treasure to God? I'm going to read some familiar verses. Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of God, the will of your Father. How much more valuable are you than they? Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Think of the parables of Jesus, the lost sheep. Then Jesus told this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts puts it on his shoulders And goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The lost coin. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. 
Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and say, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The lost son. We've heard this as the prodigal son who demanded his half of his inheritance so he could go and live wildly and do whatever he wanted and he lost everything and was starving to death and then came to his senses. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The Father's heart is for us. He loves us so passionately. It's the enemy, not our God, who dogged our heels with shame and self-doubt and accusation. The Father is fiery in his passion toward you. What does he want from you? I'm going to quote, uh, read some passages from a book called Captivating by, I had it over here, John and Stacy Eldridge. What is it that God wants from you? He wants the same thing you want. He wants to be loved. He wants to be known as only lovers can know each other. He wants intimacy with you. You have probably heard that there is in every human heart a place that God alone can fill. But there is also in God's heart a place that alone only you can fill. It follows that there is also a chamber in God himself into which none enter but the one, the individual, you. You're meant to fill a place in the heart of God that no one and nothing else can fill. He longs for you. You are the one that overwhelms his heart with just one glance of your eyes. You're the one he sings over with delight and longs to dance with across the mountaintops and ballroom floors. You're the one who takes his breath away by your beautiful heart. God wants you to live this life together with you, to share in your days and, and decisions, your desires and disappointments. He wants intimacy with you in the midst of madness and mundane, the meetings and the memos, the laundry and the lists, the carpools and the conversation, the projects and pain. 
He wants to pour his love into your heart, and he longs to have you pour yours into his. He wants your deep heart, that center place within that is the truest you. He is not interested in intimacy with the person you think you're supposed to be. Um, I shared this one time a long time ago that um, I was praying, Lord, make me like Clara. She's so loving. I want to be like Clara. And I finally woke up to my senses and said, no, he didn't want me to be Clara. He wants me to be me. He wants intimacy with the real you. Not the you you think you should be, but the real you. You can minister to the heart of God. You impact him. You matter. Jesus desires you to pour out your love on him in extravagant worship that ministers to his heart. It goes a step further. You'll find that as God restores your heart and sets you free, that you will recover long-lost passions, long-forsaken dreams. You'll find yourself drawn to some vision for making the world a better place. Those emerging desires are invitations to bring your heart to your lover and ask him to clarify, to deepen, to speak to you about how and when and with whom. That place that God calls us is that place where the world's deep hunger and our deep desire meet. We need you. We need you to awaken to God more fully and awaken to the desires of the heart that he placed within you so that you will come alive and to the role that is yours to play. Whatever your particular calling, you are meant to grace the world with your dance to follow the lead of Jesus wherever he leads you. And he will lead you first into himself. And then with him, he will lead you into the world that he loves and needs you to love. I'm going to close with several passages. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Well, I've brought you some words. But in a minute, we're going to wait upon the Lord to let him bring conviction. I'm going to pray for a revelation of his love for you. Because without his personal revelation, it is merely head knowledge. I believe God wants to go deeper than head knowledge. But first, let's turn to Isaiah 61. Uh, one to three, and I'm not sure if that's on there or not. It's because Priscilla was the wonderful person that did my uh, PowerPoint. <laughs> there it is. When Jesus began his ministry, he opened up the scriptures to these verses and read them and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said, 
key was the fulfillment of these verses. What are the verses? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, the place where God dwells, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. In Isaiah 62, 2-4, says, The nations will see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem. In the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her, for the Lord will take delight in you. Let's stand, please, everybody. I'm going to pray and just ask the Lord to do his part to reveal within you his love at a deeper level. And we'll play a song during that time. And then after that, the ministry team is going to come up and we're going to have a time of celebration. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come. I ask you to bring a revelation of your love to each person here.